Hi there. Welcome to Just Be Nominated, a podcast about movies distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter from multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. This weekend is all about Candyman, 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 Candyman. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but if horror ain't your thing, we've also got John Cena and Lil Rel Howry in the surprisingly really good uh, Vacation Friends, a screwball couples comedy that is on Hulu as I record this. You can also find the dark side of PBS's permed out peaceful painter Bob Ross in a new documentary on Netflix. And speaking of Netflix, He's All That, a gender-flipped reimagining of She's All That, premieres this weekend and got us thinking about what movies we'd want to see recast with opposites and why. And finally, we're each going to take a whack at some of the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with links to our social media, etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you want to sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, you should tell your friends, please. And also, let us know what you think in the review section wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Well, so we've got Bruce out in Sioux City, and we got Jared out in Mason City. Gotta be a spirit, not a ghost. Have you been there? Have you seen the Candyman? I have not seen anything in theaters this week because I don't have a car. So I've just been watching a lot of stuff at home. Poor Jared. I feel sorry for you. I mean, that leads us to our, our opening question of, uh, hey, Jared, you seen anything good lately? I have seen a lot of good stuff. Fortunately, it's not all the most uh, shiny new recent stuff. Uh one day this week, uh, in part, I think, because of anticipation of um, Clint Eastwood's new movie coming out in October, uh, Cry Macho, I've been doing like sort of a winding uh, watch through of his um, filmography as a director. And so I watched uh, Soli a couple of days ago, and I was actually really uh, <laughs> impressed with that one. Like, I think it's way better than, I forgot just how many ripped from the headlines type movies there were in the 2010s. You know, like with, you know, Deepwater Horizon and uh, like Captain Phillips and Lone Survivor and um, there's Snowden and like there's so many. My personal favorite that everyone's kind of forgotten. What was the uh, the Clint Eastwood one about the guys who uh, stopped the, the the train assault? 1517 to Paris, I think. Yeah. yeah. And he and he just cast the guys who actually <laughs> like stopped it like they're not even actors. I haven't watched that one yet, but um, I really enjoyed uh, Sully, and I think it kind of fits in well with what he's been doing with some of his movies now since American Sniper, which did not work as well for me, but this kind of theme of, like, these people who are, like, heroic in the modern era, but, like, being heroic now doesn't mean what it did, like, when he was playing heroes, like, you know, back in, like, the 60s and 70s, and there are these people that are all flawed in like various sorts of ways. Obviously like Richard Jewell's a hero that lives with his mom. Soli is like the ultimate hero, but he's having like nightmares and stuff like that. And his like story is getting picked apart. He feels like, and so I really 
really enjoyed that one. And I mean, you know, anytime you get to watch Tom Hanks, like bringing his A game is always fun. And then uh, for whatever reason, I also got onto a big uh, Warren Beatty kick this week and I watched uh, Dick Tracy for the first time. And I also watched uh, Bullworth for the first time. And I actually rewatched Bullworth last night. Really? You liked it? I loved both of those movies a lot. Dick Tracy is a unheralded work of auteur genius. I genuinely believe. I feel that way about Dick Tracy and Bullworth both, actually. In part because, like, the cast and crew for both of those is, like, the only the kind of thing you could get if, like, you have as much goodwill and faith as I'm sure Warren Beatty does. Because, like, both of them, like, Bullworth, like, Ennio Morricone did the music. The guy that did the cinematography, like, shot Apocalypse Now. And then, like, you know, the cast is stacked in Bullworth, as it is in Dick Tracy also. And it's just, I, I kind of wish that Warren Beatty made more movies, but I get why he didn't, because I know he was, like, a huge pain to work with for the studios. Bruce, do you even remember much of uh, Bullworth? Because Chris and I were talking about feeling like that movie got memory hold quite a bit. Yeah, I I remember reviewing it. I remember I have some kind of a piece of art from Bullworth. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are just certain things that just hit. But in terms of plot and everything, nah. It does feel like a time capsule in certain ways because of like some of the specific stuff that like his like senator character is talking about in the movie but then a lot of the rest of it would fit in pretty comfortably in a movie in 2021 without anybody being like why is this guy going on about this stuff this isn't what people are concerned about right now uh have you done a deep dive in his stuff have you watched other warren Beatty stuff i've watched dick tracy and bullworth now i still need to watch reds because i know that's like the big big one you know and reds when you see that you go well what's the big deal why did he get the directing oscar and What's cool about that is he did the, what we call witnesses, where he has people that are, are speaking, which wasn't done before that time, at least not to any degree that you go, oh, and he kind of created that concept. Now it drove people crazy because he kept adding more and more of these, these witnesses that would be able to help tell the story. But I think it's a fascinating directorial um, kind of accomplishment so do watch that and then if you want to go back and see some of his acting stuff that's fun shampoo is a really cute film and that's one that you'll see him kind of playing into his his image at the time i think warren Beatty is one of those people that you would love to visit with because he would talk movies in a way that um that maybe you would want to talk about and not be overwhelmed by the fact that he's a star you know he and and um Nancy Reagan used to have lunch together all the time. And you think, what an odd couple. And they would talk about the movies because he was around during those days when she was around. And they would have similar people in common. But I think his, his directing, he, he's like um, Barbara Streisand, maybe a little too picky about everything. Whereas you get Clint Eastwood, who's not picky about anything. He'll let a boom in the shot, you know? So it's, it's nice to see that there is this different kind of approach by actors. But I think because Warren and, and Barbara were so worried about how their own image came off, that they were also seeing that as a picture. The picture would be a reflection of their image. And so it had to be as perfect as they could make it. Anyway. I guess the last thing I guess I'll toss out on Dick Tracy, 
I encourage anyone listening, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes, but there is a, a 2009 Dick Tracy special, which is credited as uh, being directed by Warren Beatty. And it is Leonard Malton interviewing Warren Beatty in character as Dick Tracy. And again, this is in 2009. This is almost 20 years after the film originally came out. And it's just them talking about Dick Tracy. It is just absolutely bonkers. It's out there on YouTube and whatever. And anybody who's seen the movie Dick Tracy and loves it as much as, uh, you know, Jared and I do. Yeah, search it out. What do you think about Dick Tracy, Bruce? Well, you know, it's funny. He really leaned into um, the big corporate world of Disney because, man, he was showing up at theme parks. He was doing a lot of stuff which normally Warren Beatty wouldn't do to help sell the movie. And it was just everywhere. I think it's, it's very, I, I still like Al Pacino because he's so over the top in that Madonna is Madonna. And I'm sorry, you can't really, you can't do anything with that end of this stuff, but all those kind of gangster like guys, fun, very fun. And he was right. Maybe a little old to play Dick Tracy, but he was right for the role. So Bruce, I know you on Monday, saw quite the big the big tent pole i got a yeah a sneak and i really don't want to talk too much about how it is if it's good or not i mean we'll talk about that next week i think there's an embargo on talking about that but i will tell you shang chi and it's like this subtitle about the rings the 10 rings or whatever very fascinating because it is taking the marvel universe in another world in another in another you can see that it's not business as usual for them. And I like that. I thought that was very good. Um, it's more in keeping with um, Black Widow, where you're kind of having these standalone origin stories. And um, Simi Lu is fun, lots of fun. And it isn't like it's all just some kind of historic look at something. He's very contemporary. And I didn't realize that Aquafina had such a big role in this. And she's a big, big part of the story. But it is fascinating. I think it will do really well. I don't know how they're going to tie things together, but I was told by somebody who also saw it that this actually harkens back to one of the original Iron Man films. Interesting. So if you're, if you're that good at following all that junk, there's some tie to Iron Man. It seems like this is a standalone in the sense that the first Iron Man was kind of a standalone. Well, did you ever, even when those started, did you ever say, oh, this is going to be a bunch of them? You thought, well, they're lucky to get one Iron Man out. And if it does, okay, we might see a second. But the idea that there's this whole kind of concept going, and I wonder when that actually started. When did they start kind of connecting the dots? Because it's a great, whoever did it is really a genius to connect it all together. And I think- but do you really think he's responsible? Yeah, him and uh, and John Favreau, who directed and you know co-starred in that first Iron Man movie, I think they are the ones that have put a huge stamp on the shaping of at least the early stuff. And then Kevin Feige, I think, has been you know maneuvering things along the way. I don't. Know, I mean, just the idea of you have people filming scenes for uh, you know the, the End Game Part One and Two you know, years before they're going to come out. Um, I mean, yeah, just logistically, it is 
insane how they started to tie things together. And now it seems like we are starting back at square one and there's the expectation that things are going to end up getting tied back together with the introduction of Kang in the Loki series on Disney. And so you have this whole other elements of the TV shows playing into this much larger story structuring, uh, story infrastructure. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're wandering into some weird territory with the multiverse and the Eternals, which is coming out later this year and is, I think, going to be the biggest pill that Marvel has asked anyone to swallow yet, as far as just really weird conceptual stuff. So anyway. They're even going uh, like backward in time with like uh, characters and who they're casting for them, because like obviously one of the things people are making a big deal about again this week is that the spider-man movie at the end of the year is going to have alfred molina in it as uh doc ock which obviously that goes all the way back to the spider-man 2 that sam raimi did in the 2000s so and and sam raimi's coming back to make the next uh what is it the next uh doctor strange movie yep so yeah they're going all the way back to square one with some of this yeah supposedly other spider-man are going to be in it yeah so yeah and that's the um the first trailer for the new Spider-Man dropped. And as you know, you pointed out, Jared, I mean, it, it's going to tie into this, this multiverse concept, which was introduced and then elaborated on in the Loki series, where you have all these, you know, an infinite number of things. And also the, the what if series on, on Disney Plus, which is kind of a grab bag, but has been really interesting so far. So we're going to see all of the previous Spider-Man movies are getting folded in. And as the multiverses start interacting as Kang is, I don't know, I feel from a production standpoint and a, you know, continuity and story editing standpoint, it is a fascinating, hyper-organized thing that they've got going on over there. You know what I like about these films is you really don't need to know anything to enjoy them. It isn't like, oh, I, what does that mean? I don't, if you're as kind of divorced from it as I am, I can still enjoy the movie as a movie. I don't have to know who, what that, that straight person in the background, who is that? And uh, in Shang-Chi, you will see a mention of the blip. So, you know, if you have that, that kind of knowledge, it give, it's just a little extra. It's a, it's a little bonus for being able to hang with all of it. Yep. So Shang-Chi's coming out, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. And we'll talk about that next weekend. Yeah, it'll be a big Labor Day film. So you'll be able to just wallow in all of it. And then I also saw Vacation Friends. I did too. You know what? I thought they were a good pair. I thought those two work well together. And I could easily see them taking the place of Dwayne Johnson and uh, Kevin Hart. Couldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah, we're moving into like the, the new releases uh, chunk now. And uh, yeah, Vacation Friends just came out uh, as of today, today being Friday. And it stars John Cena and Lil Rel Howery. You know, it's very typical. It's one of those things where you have the bad in-laws that don't approve of who you are or what you are. And then you have some kind of wild card, not unlike Rodney Dangerfield, coming in and kind of stirring the pot a little bit. But I laughed and I wasn't expecting to. With all the different stuff that... Um that John Cena is getting now, is there a point where like 
Mark Wahlberg sees all of this and is just grinding his teeth into like a, a powder because it feels like John Cena is slowly, if not already, stealing Mark Wahlberg's lane. <laughs> he could. You know, though, I think John Cena is could be a really good dramatic actor. I don't know that The Rock could do some of that really heavy drama that would get you an Oscar nomination. I think The Rock is a movie star. But I think John Cena could be kind of roughed up a bit where he could do something like Stillwater. The one that I think that's even truer of, and I don't know if we've talked about this before or not, but Dave Bautista is definitely the most talented actor of any of those wrestling guys. And he knows what his limits are and he plays within them. And I think that's, that's a smart move, a very smart move. Of the wrestlers that are entering the, the broader entertainment, uh, you know, industry. Uh, yeah. Batista has taken the biggest weird swings. I'm initially thinking of uh, Blade Runner 2049 with his ridiculous tiny little glasses and he's going to be in Dune. Yeah, another uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, joint. <laughs> and uh, Knives Out too, so that'll be fun. Yeah, he is. He's taken some some really interesting roles, and I mean, it felt like the Guardians role that he had, Guardians of the Galaxy role as Drax, was a little bit stunt casting. But I mean, that exceeded all expectations. I thought if Hulk Hogan let his hair grow out, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't the Hulkster. He could be an Oscar winner. He could be an Oscar winner. He really could, because we only know him as a character, and that's all he's ever played as a character. But I could see him easily being in the uh, Sound of Metal. He could easily be in that and as the counselor. And you go, oh, my God, he was really good. But you see, it's a matter of them deciding, when are you giving up the moneymaker to try something else? And I think John Cena is there. I think John Cena says, screw it. I'm going to try and be an actor. I'm going to be something a little more than what you think I am. Yeah. So Vacation Friends, the, the basic plot is you've got Laurel Howery and Yvonne Orji are a couple and they're going on vacation and they end up getting uh, crammed together with John Cena and Meredith Hagner who are another couple. They're wild though. Absolutely wild. Rich and wild. And they like, they ruin things. They don't care. They have no, you know, and the other ones are uptight about everything. Yep. I mean, the thing about Vacation Friends is that it, it builds this very safe structure. You know, pretty much within the first 10 minutes, exactly what the arc is going to be. You understand how the ending is going to be. There's so many big, plot elements that you can see exactly where things are going to go. And so you feel safe with it. But then you end up with John Cena and Lil Rel Howery having this tremendous chemistry. And the, the lines that they are delivering are ridiculous. And there's definitely some things that are set up with uh, John Cena being able to predict when birds are going to take a dump that ends <laughs> up playing this much larger role than, than you may expect. I mean, it's, I, I genuinely enjoyed the movie. It is crass and gross. I could feel every bit of uh, Lil Rel's pain throughout the whole thing. I could see myself with a guy like John Cena who would kind of force me into doing these things I wouldn't want to do. 
I felt every bit of it. And I thought they, that has to be something on their part that they've been able to make me feel uncomfortable in that kind of a situation, because I would be bailing right away. The minute they tell me that the room is not ready and you can't stay here, I am not staying with these wild people that just wrecked a catamaran. No, it's not going to happen. So I could, I could relate to every bit of it. Jared, you got to see it. I will add it to the list. That sounds like just a nice, like mindless kind of thing to put on. It's a great Friday night film, but do not let any kids see it because it's as raunchy and as dirty as you can get. There's no like nudity or, no. you know, bodily fluids, but the language is very coarse, very blue. And a lot of the punchlines are pretty much all about <laughs> ridiculous stuff like that. And I, I will point out um, two of the, the writers, there's like five writers listed, but uh, two of the writers. John Francis Daly is one of them, right? Oh, he used to be one of the freaks and geeks, I think, wasn't he? Yep. Sam. The main geek and or freak. And, and his writing partner, Jonathan Goldstein, are two of the, the five guys who, who got that. And they, we talked about Spider-Man Homecoming earlier, or we talked about Spider-Man earlier. Uh, they're credited with Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, also Game Night. And it is similar to that. It is very similar to Game Night. Yep. And I think that it is, Vacation Friends is destined for some kind of a cult status in the same way that Game Night is, where it's going to be a long tail of people slowly discovering this movie. Jared, what have you got to tell us about Candyman? The new Candyman is uh, out this week. Uh, this one is directed by uh, Nia DaCosta, and um, there's um, definitely some tweaks to it based on just like what I've seen in the trailer and um, what I've been reading about it from the original Basically, this go around, some of the stuff that is the same is that um, the, the main character and his partner, they move into like a loft type area in what's close to the former like Cabrini Green projects in Chicago, which play a, a huge role in the original movie. And um, basically, things slowly start to uh, run afoul once uh, the main guy, uh, Anthony, meets this like old timer who tells him all about Candyman and like I said things uh, spiral out of control it seems like so far the reviews for uh, the new Candyman have been um, pretty solid but regardless I'm interested to see it because any new take on a movie that's like that foundational of a movie for a genre I'm always curious to see how they try to like do something different but uh, still keep some of their original DNA too so what makes you kind of latch into those kinds of films well, the thing that's like, like so interesting with like Candyman in particular is like, it does a really, really good job, A, of like this whole idea of urban legends and everything um, and like, you know, folklore and just like the power of that. And then specifically, really more than any other horror movie until I guess really Get Out dealt with race and class and everything in a way you don't see a lot of in horror movies and like it makes total sense that Jordan Peele would be one of the producers on the new Candyman because the original was you know set in like a public housing development in Chicago and really was all about race and class in like inner city U.S. so it really makes sense like I said that Jordan Peele would latch on to something like that considering they get out and 
uh, us both deal with that a lot. So that's another thing that kind of sets Candyman apart from even other horror movies. It's hack at this point to, you know, say that a setting is a character. You know, New York is uh, the fifth character in whatever. But Cabrini Green in the first Candyman and in this one, uh, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, Cabrini Green was a housing uh, development that was notorious. Uh, it was just this, you know, big brutalist concrete blocks. Uh, and setting this film in Cabrini Green or in that area now has all of this very specific loaded elements that are going to resonate. But if you've seen uh, the documentary Hoop Dreams, one of the two uh, main guys in it, William Gates, was like a resident of um, Cabrini Green, too. So that's another big, big movie connection. When you see uh, horror films that have, you know, maybe a little more meaning than just I'm killing people and that's it. Do you look at something like American Horror Story or American Horror Stories, the ones that Ryan Murphy is doing? And do you say, are they doing a good job at that or are they just trying to be trendy? I have not seen enough of American Horror Story to, uh, to make a thing on that. But uh, based on Ryan Murphy's general like filmography, I would probably say more toward the trendy than anything. <laughs> because, he, you know, he'll take a, an old fashioned concept and then try to put a little twist that it's like, oh, it's about whatever. I just wonder if that's just kind of pandering or playing into the hands of, you know, people who say, oh, this is, we, we really underestimated what this was all about. And really, it's just about a camp where kid get kill, kids get killed. I've always been fascinated with the idea that serial killers are really moralistic, where they are always killing people who are committing crimes of some sort. They might be breaking the Ten Commandments, for example. And so... Michael Myers, you name whoever they are, Freddy Krueger, they're shoving a ship through the kids that are screwing in the beds in the camp, you know, and it's like, oh, maybe there's something else here, but I really don't want to think about it. The Ryan Murphy stuff definitely feels like it's more about the style that he's going for, the camp aspects of it, not the summer camp, but just the, you know, high camp elements that, that he's doing, very soap opera which is not to say that he hasn't, you know, there isn't some kind of larger, you know, commentary that is layered into what he's been doing with the American Horror Story stuff. To tie, I guess, a, a bow on this, uh, the, again, the director, Nia DaCosta, who only has done uh, one movie before this from 2018, Little Woods, the next thing she's doing in uh, 2022 is the Captain Marvel, I guess, sequel, uh, The Marvels. So, again, continuing the trend of... Uh, directors on just a much quicker trajectory now of like indie movie to, you know, modest like studio movie to Disney box office blockbuster. Would you want that? Would you want to be throwing all the money in the world and say, well, now you got to be in the Marvel universe. It's easy for me to say, cause it's never going to happen to me. So I can just pretend that I would have like, you know, I'd be the most, you know, credible person ever or whatever, but I, I do think it could really, really screw you up if like it's go happening that quickly where you're going from like an indie thing to something that massive, like versus like, I don't, I feel like, you know, Sam Raimi or even John Favreau, 
doing okay with all that because it took them a while to get to the point where they were making Spider-Man or Iron Man. It wasn't like two moves and then they were there in terms of like movies they directed. Yeah, but then you look at Chloe. She does this one where they're traveling around in a big old, you know, truck basically, crapping in a bucket. And then um, she's going to one of the biggest Marvel films ever. I wonder what that would be like. Do you say, well, oh, let's not have so much food on the craft services table because we could save some money and make another film? The interesting question for me is, what is Marvel getting from these directors? What is, I mean, to what degree are these people that they're bringing in actually putting their auteur stamp on things? With Guardians of the Galaxy, you could feel that that was just this big, you know, goofy movie made by a guy who used to work for Troma and keeps putting Lloyd Kaufman in the background of all of his movies. Thank God. Uh, with Chloe Zhao, it's more, what are the elements that she's going to bring to it where I can say that's a Chloe Zhao thing? And then there's the other layer of what are the movies that were missing because of the two or three years that they end up in pre and post production with all of these you know, much larger films. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Ultimately, I think they're going to make better Marvel movies because of it. But yeah, it's a bigger, like where is there, is there a larger cost? I don't know. Did either of you guys see the Bob Ross documentary? Have not. I think you would probably like it, Bruce. Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Bob Ross being the PBS painter, uh, happy little trees that everyone knows and loves. And, you know, you don't really want to find out that a guy like this is, you know, a jerk or whatever. And that isn't the case. You don't discover that, but you definitely find out that there are, there is a dark side to the industry around him. In, in a way that is, you know, kind of kind of sad for his family and sad for him. It rides a really nice line between being, I don't know, too tabloidy and actually having uh, a lot of resonance. They have a ton of interviews with uh, his son and a bunch of the people that he trained with and professional acquaintances. And they also note pretty early on that there were I think, over a dozen people who refused to be involved because they were uh, afraid of legal entanglements or being sued by these other characters in the film. So I don't know if that's a, uh, enough of a hook to, to grab you. Did he lead a, a lurid life? Was there anything bad there or not? I would say there is a little bit of, of luridness that is touched on, but not in any way like Bob Ross is not going to get canceled over this movie or anything that is revealed in this film. Like he's, he comes out looking a-okay, but he certainly ends up being a bit of a pawn in, in, in this larger corporate structure that he is a little bit in over his head with uh, as, as things go. You don't end up with t-shirts about you at Target if there's not some weird kind of like corporate entanglement people always downplayed his abilities, but hey, you could paint a picture that looked decent. It's just, they didn't like the idea that it was so formulaic. It wasn't just the muses were coming to land on you. His 
ability as a painter was much more about inciting people to explore an artistic side of themselves and to embrace the, the creative process and all of those much more conceptual elements. You know, you, you forget as you get older that you can just create things and it doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be overcritical of it. When you're a kid, you just make stuff. And then when you're an adult, you overthink it all. Honestly, too, with all you're saying, Chris, like if he was like an even better painter and everything, I don't think it would be as inspirational to people because they would find it a lot harder to be like, I could do that, too. Like you need someone that has like almost exactly that kind of level of artistic capability to really inspire people because like it's the same thing in music. Like if I'm listening to some indie guy that's just strumming away on a guitar, like I might not ever get as like famous or notable as him, but I could at least do something similar and like it doesn't seem completely impossible versus like if i'm listening to some like immaculately produced like you know steely dan album or something i'm never going to be able to do that and i probably wouldn't even try to so he's kind of at the exact right level he needs to be to be that kind of like influence yeah he can inspire you to want to do something whereas if you saw somebody who's too talented you say i never can do that so then you just give up I'm not like spoiling anything, but like definitely towards the end of the film, they they interview a handful of people who, you know, either participated in these classes or, you know, had their lives changed. I mean, there's, you know, one guy's like, I actually tried to kill myself, you know, five, six times. And it wasn't until I started making art where all of that went away. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to say for art therapy and, you know, you can, whether or not you got it through Bob Ross or some of the other TV painters that uh, are, are mentioned in the film, it's, you know, he, he was the guy who, who was out there making things comfortable, making art and creativity approachable in a way that hadn't necessarily been done or hadn't been done on that scale where you had millions of people just kind of having PBS on in the background and, you know, catching this, I don't I love whenever someone describes him as like a human quaalude, <laughs> you know, he's just this, you know, like you put him on and there, there's just a, a complete piece to it. He talks about it in the documentary, you know, that it was a, a conscious approach to the tone of voice that, that he affected and yeah, his, his, his appearance, all, all the aesthetics. Let's put some seagulls in here and see how that looks. And <laughs> put a couple of pine trees. If you look here, you see that we are on the shore. What's the name of it? Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed. There's your hook right there, the betrayal and greed. Also coming out on Netflix is uh, a movie called He's All That, which is a gender-flipped version of She's All That, a movie from 20 years ago? 25? This is the movie that they were filming at Union Station in LA in like December 2020 that like they closed down a COVID testing site so that they could film He's All That. I had forgotten about that until right now, but like this is the movie that caused a COVID-19 testing site to be shut down 
at a time that I, I don't think was a particularly good point for LA in terms of COVID numbers in December, 2020. So um, hopefully the, uh, the movie was worth doing that for. <laughs> I don't think that I, I will watch it unless I am, it ends up playing a role in, in, in a later episode of this show. Yep. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, gender flipping. Hmm, that's interesting. Why they would do that one. I think, I mean, well, part of it is it's an easy pitch. It's an easy, you know, meeting to take. It is, you know, someone coming in and just saying, you know, she's all that. He's all that. I'm imagining like a madman-esque like pitch where like they write she's all that up on a whiteboard and then they just X out the S and then they point to it and be like, we have a movie. <laughs> exactly. Bruce, are there any films that you think would be interesting to, I guess, remake or kind of echo in, in structure and, and content, but with things being flipped gender-wise? This triggered the idea of teen films. Do you remember Swim Fan? Oh, yeah. Where this girl was kind of obsessed with this boy, and then she was going to be all kind of, could you do that with a girl being the object of the thing or would that look really creepy? I mean, that's a creepy psychological thriller anyway. So I think that's totally fair game. Yeah. That's a, that's a good pull. There you go. But teen films, I think are ones that lend themselves to that. Oh, for sure. It's just, it's now with the way, the way our, our kind of cancel culture, me too, all those things playing in. I don't know if it would sell because in a minute, minute it could be, you know, oh, this is crass. We can't do this. But anyway, well, what do you guys think? What were your flips? The one that I went with that I'm thinking would be really interesting is Forrest Gump. The way that he is sort of this zealot character showing up in everything. Yeah. I think it would be really fascinating to see those exact same things through a female perspective. You get a whole different set of dynamics sexually and politically and, you know, socioeconomic, cultural. There's just a whole different set of toys to play with in that sandbox, I think. And I know it's based on a book, but I think that would be really interesting. If you had a female character then as Forrest Gump, would she be pushed away in those situations? Would it be a different kind of a, you know, because with Forrest, it was kind of like he bumbled his way into shaking hands with the president. But would you have it where if it was a female, would she look like she was coming on to the president? No, no, we've got to keep her away from that. I, you know, it's just fascinating what it could be. Yeah, for sure. And there's, you know, all these different things to negotiate. You know, how does, how, how would a, a female character end up in these scenarios where you're, you're kind of bumbling into things, but it's got a whole different, you know, social resonance to it and in the way that it would be perceived and reacted to. That's a great one to talk through. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. I don't think it would get greenlit, but conceptually, it's a really interesting uh, thought, you know, puzzle to, to kind of dangle. How about you, Jared? I had two. <laughs> one, just really quickly, um, I rewatched a 
because I'm also doing a Scorsese watch through, and I rewatched um, King of Comedy yet again, which I absolutely love. And this time in particular, one of the things I was most fascinated by is um, Sandra Bernhardt's character in that movie, who plays like Robert De Niro's character's friend. And she's also just like completely off the deep end, like, and is like a huge fan too of Jerry Lewis's character and helps Robert De Niro um, kidnap uh, Jerry Lewis's character, basically. And so I thought it would really be interesting to have that movie even more through like her eyes of this person of like latching on to this other like complete psychopath and then like them joining forces to, to kidnap someone like it, it's just her whole character arc is really, really intriguing to me in that movie. And I think it would be cool to like spend more time in that world, especially with her character because of how great it is. And then the other one, I would love to see another Repo Man where you can keep the same thing in terms of the main character, but I want the like female equivalent of Harry Dean Stanton, like just like a like down on their luck, hang dog, like, actress like as a henry uh, harry dean stanton type in repo man just like taking pills to stay awake and not really interested in the job but still doing it anyway <laughs> back up on king of comedy yeah what if you had kathy griffin be the comedian the one that gets kidnapped right and have all of her detractors be the ones who were really trying to get her canceled when she started doing all of her trump stuff that, that could work, too. You could also switch it with, like, the Jerry Lewis character as well. That would also be possible, I think. Yeah. What's weird is that, I mean, King of Comedy, I think it's it proposes a world where a woman would be a late-night host, which has been a sticking point in that you know, professional realm for a very long time. So that opens a whole other door of, you know, fun stuff that you can mess with. So now we got the news. What's on the news, Transom? Bruce? I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. I mean, I've heard a lot this week. I've heard a lot. I've done a lot of interviews this week because I'm doing TV shows. And I've heard a lot of kind of interesting things. But um, there's nothing that's really newsworthy. I'm waiting to get into that Academy Museum. That sucker's opening pretty soon. And if I have to make a trip to California just to go see it, I might. Can you imagine seeing the shark from Jaws? It greets you in the door when you get right there. I think it's going to be fascinating. You can say hi to Bruce, Bruce. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why do they name sharks Bruce all the time? And just to be clear, I was saying... Bruce, you can say hi to Bruce. I was not saying say hi to Bruce, Bruce, the uh, comedian everyone knows and loves. But, you know, Bruce the shark there in Finding Nemo, the shark is Bruce. <laughs> they keep doing this. What is this? Who started this and why? Jaws. Jaws started this. and Now you're stuck with it. Okay, newsboys, come on. Cough it up. Paul Thomas Anderson has a movie that's supposed to be coming out November 26th of this year called uh, Soggy Bottom that follows a high school student who becomes an actor in the 70s. And the, the cast is out there. It's Bradley Cooper, uh, Cooper Hoffman, which is, who is the son of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, one of the Safdie brothers is in it. Um, one of the sisters from the band Haim. 
But beyond that, no one really knows much else about the movie, even though it's supposed to be coming out November of this year. There still hasn't been a trailer or anything. And so the article that I pulled for today was um, from Cinema Blend. It was, uh, what's up with Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie? Even the studio doesn't seem to know. And it kind of talks about just how little of information there's been about this movie from definitely one of the most well-respected directors in Hollywood. They're just being nothing out there about it, even though we're getting uh, only a couple months away. So I'm pretty intrigued by that, to be keeping that tight of a lid on something even this uh, close to time. Uh, the pull quote that they've got in the article on Son of the Blend, which we'll, I'll link to that in the, uh, in the show notes, but um, we will have news about Paul Thomas Anderson's movie when he tells us what it is. <laughs> He's got to be in pretty late stages of production, if not fully into post-production. And for the studio to still be in the dark on it is wild. <laughs> what a great place to get to in your career when like studios are just putting out statements like that. We'll have news sometime. And not in, not in the context of like, we don't know, we're worried. Just like, hey, we don't know. Like he hasn't, uh, he hadn't told us, you know, it's a, uh, it's like the first time that you, you know, when you're in high school and you kind of leave and don't tell your parents where you're going and they don't care, you know? <laughs> Well, all they have to do is just say, it ain't Dune. We haven't been slogging this thing forever, and it didn't cost us a jillion dollars. Yeah. And uh, that was all out of CinemaCon, a big convention earlier this week, and maybe even into this weekend, I'm not sure, but it's all uh, theater owners. So there, there's a lots of interesting news bits that are coming out of there. The other big one was Patty Jenkins saying that the HBO Max release of Wonder Woman 1984 was quote unquote heartbreaking, which totally understandable. The quote from her, it was the best of dozens of bad decisions. There was no easy call. And this was just the, the best way to get this movie out. But that is not my news. The news that I've got is maybe, it does concern Spike Lee and a 9-11 documentary that, that he's been working on. Apparently the last episode of this series doesn't necessarily just lay out conspiracy theories, but also kind of leans into them a little bit. I mean, conspiracy theories that have been debunked many, many times over. And Spike Lee should know better than to give them more air. But it's hard to tell sometimes with Spike Lee where he has such a, a long history of being provocative, but it's always been in a sincere way. Like the ending of Do the Right Thing is legendarily provocative, but it's that way on purpose. After it kind of came out that he was going to dabble in some of this stuff. There was a, an op-ed piece in Slate that came out and got a lot of heat. Uh, heat as in just, you know, it got passed around a lot. And he, uh, Spike Lee, whether it's because of that or any other coverage in the New York Times, has said that he, he's going back to the editing room. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I saw news that like, that now that some of that stuff might be getting like chopped out. So we'll see what the final product ends up being. Yeah. And I mean, I'm Spike Lee's documentaries have been 
invaluable. I think the, the two multi-part series that he did for HBO on Katrina are masterworks. I rewatched both of them towards the beginning of the pandemic and that was, man, yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff. And, and him as, as an interviewer and as a, uh, a filmmaker and a storyteller, when he's wearing that documentarian hat, he, he puts out really tremendous stuff. So I'm fascinated to see this whole series and where his you know, personal stamp hits it. So that's the news. Jared? Yes. Would you like to uh, take us out? Absolutely. So look, uh, if, you, if you're messing around in you know, Chicago and you say Candyman five times into a mirror, a dude might show up and you might get like hooked to death. There might be some bees involved. It's not going to be good for you. Keep your EpiPen handy. Yes. If, however, you are anywhere else and you're like listening to some weird ambient music and drinking a Coke Zero and you say my name five times into a mirror, what's going to happen is I'm going to show up. I'm going to help you sort through uh, movies that are out for the week. If there are any playing at a theater near you, I'm going to drive you to the movies and you're going to get to see something good. But you might you might have car trouble. Yes. So, you know, plan for that time wise and maybe, you know, you'll have to get an Uber or something the last way to the theater. But I'm at least going to get you toward the theater and get a movie for you picked out. That's the J-Man. He always thinks about you first. Exactly. Well, thank you guys. Thanks to the listeners for for sticking around. And uh, see you next week with some some Shang-Chi action. So that is the end of the episode. Next week, we hear there's a big new Marvel movie coming out that you might want to see. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope you enjoyed it and are taking care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. Let's put some seagulls in here and see how that looks. And put a couple of pine trees. If you look here, you see that we are on the shore.